Welcome to Bespoke Investment Group's Bespoke Cast. I'm George Perks, macro strategist for Bespoke Investment Group. Bespoke Cast features conversations with markets professionals and economists whose views we find interesting or insightful into the world of finance and economics. If you like what you hear today, you can learn more about our firm by visiting our website, bespokepremium.com. Bespoke offers financial market research and insight to investors of all types, ranging from individuals to large institutions. You can follow us on Twitter at Bespoke Invest. If you enjoy BespokeCast, we would also appreciate you reviewing the podcast in the iTunes store or on your favorite podcast platform. Reviews help us gain visibility and also help us improve the podcast in future episodes. This week on BespokeCast, we're thrilled to have Pete Nigerian with us talking about the world of options, his experiences in the financial industry, and how he broke into the world of finance, having played for the Golden Gophers at the University of Minnesota and a number of NFL teams, including the Tampa Bay Buccaneers and the Minnesota Vikings. Pete's a founder of Trade Monster, and we're thrilled to have him here today. Pete, thanks for joining us on BespokeCast. Hey, I'm very excited to do it. I think this should be a lot of fun. Yeah, we've been looking forward to this one. So uh, I think it would be great to start off and talk about uh, your early life and and what it was like uh, playing college football. I played college football myself. I was a uh, four-year walk-on at at Duke University, and it was an amazing experience for me, and and I could talk about it for days. But it would be great to hear you sort of talk about how you got into football and how you reached a really high level of competitiveness um, in in that endeavor. Well, I was always addicted to football, even from a very young age. My dad was a was a football player. He was drafted into the NFL, uh, but he was already in medical school. So he he took a pass on going to the NFL, and I think in some ways he, he wished he would have at least had a taste of the NFL, but he played semi-pro ball while he was uh, in medical school at Cal Berkeley. And uh, just kind of an overachiever type of a guy, but he got all of us, my brothers and I, exposed to it. And I'm the youngest of three other uh, Nigerian boys, and all of us played the same position pretty much throughout our uh, our careers. We were, um, in my case, I was a running back and a linebacker all the way up through high school and actually even into college football at Minnesota. As a matter of fact, when I was getting recruited um, around the country, um, and I was very fortunate because we had a, a, a really good team for the first time in a long time in the city of Minneapolis, where we moved to from uh, from the Bay Area, California. And we had a great team that year, and a lot of guys were going Division One. and I had an opportunity to take a lot of visits around the country and um, was exposed to a lot of schools, and I kind of determined that I thought at the time that I'd be a running back, and uh, so I only went to the schools that were recruiting me as a running back. And I found out very quickly when I got to the University of Minnesota that I probably wasn't a running back. <laughs> I was probably better suited for linebacker, and um, and it was just something that it it came pretty natural to me, and uh, it probably helped having a dad who'd played and then three older brothers who played, so because I I constantly was exposed to you know the world of football and all the other sports, but uh, we all uh, really uh, pushed ourselves to excel at football. We loved it, and. Um, you know, I really enjoyed the the entire experience all the way up to the pro level. I mean, I was I was very lucky um, along the way to get an opportunity to play in the NFL, and that was something that was a dream come true, like for so many other people in the world that that have been able to get there. And I I know it's a a limited number, but um, it 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 really is the pinnacle. What were some of the differences playing high school ver- or high school versus college, <laughs> and then college versus the NFL? I mean, they're yeah. obviously totally different worlds, but it'd be interesting to hear yeah. what you sort of thought were the biggest differences. You know, people always use the expression, "Well, it's faster when you get to the next level from where you were," and and obviously that's true. But I, I think what it what it really is is that. 
when you go from high school and you are, let's just say in, in my case, you know, I had a, a, a pretty decent college or high school career and, you know, you get to the point where you, um, you, you have an opportunity to really, especially when you've got other players around you, to really be dominating. And um, when you get to the next level, and in that, this case, the jump from high school to college, you realize, wow, you know, this is a different world now. I'm, I'm no longer able to dominate my opponent. And, you know, it's, you, you find yourself figuring out, okay, well, the next step is going to have to be a big one. And the, the next step is going to be I've got to get a lot stronger and a lot faster and, uh, and really understand the position that I'm playing because, you know, it's a far more cerebral game than people really give it credit for. I, it blows my mind how, the, how this has not trickled down to sort of the average fan, how unbelievably complicated every defensive scheme, every offensive scheme, mm-hmm. and, and obviously, you know, even even when I was playing to now, looking mm-hmm. at how things are changing, I graduated in 2012. So mm-hmm. I can imagine for you, looking back at, <laughs> at how much it's changed since the 1980s, I believe, is when you yep. were you were yep. at Minnesota. Yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, the game is chess at a speed <laughs> that kills people. I mean, really, that that's that's what it is, and it's mm-hmm. remarkable that that the typical fan sort of doesn't really have a, a lot of knowledge around that, you, you know, even though fans are deeply devoted to the game in this country. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think, you know, at the college level, uh, what, what fans don't understand is these guys are student athletes. Now, there's, there's been some criticism and there's been some schools that obviously have, have sort of bent the rules or broken the rules or however you want to do, phrase it. But uh, for the most part, I would say that these guys are working so hard to compete in the classroom, and then you've got to compete on the football field or whatever sport it may be, but in this case, football. And it really is incredible. And what you've got to learn, and you you said it very well, it is like a chess match because as offenses have evolved, and and when I was at the University of Minnesota, I had the pleasure for playing for one of my all-time favorite coaches, Lou Holtz, before he went to Notre Dame. And Sweet Lou was great about just making sure he, you know, we, we, we always knew that we might not be the best athletes, you know, when we're playing Michigan and Ohio State and some of these great programs over the years, Oklahoma and Nebraska, and, and maybe they've got an edge on us because they've got far more four and five star recruits on their team than maybe we did. But, you know, there is enough of a, a, a game that can be played in terms of how you line up and how you position, and, and obviously everybody's got to be on the same page and execute for that to actually occur. I mean, I I still fondly remember, and this is going to sound crazy because it was a loss, but one of the best games we ever played as a team at Minnesota was my senior year, and we were playing an Oklahoma team with Troy Aikman and and absolutely nothing but star-studded first-round picks on both their offense and defense that year. And we played them to the bitter bitter end. And as a matter of fact, it was a final play of the game where we were throwing the ball into the end zone to win the football game. We didn't, but we were there. And they had far better athletes and far better players. But Lou understood that, like you're saying, I mean, it, it's a chess match. And so we we moved and shifted numbers in such a way both on offense and defense so that we could at least give ourselves some sort of an edge on how we wanted to approach the game. And you obviously have to have smart players, and you've got to have guys that are willing to be dedicated to put in the time and the effort, and you know, not just in the weight room and all, but you know, getting into that playbook and understanding exactly what you need to do. And it's that reactive thing, too, because it's one thing to, to look on it and say on a chalkboard, well, if, if somebody's going to move here, we're going to go there. 
and then you have to transcend that into full speed on the field during let, a let game. Let me tell you, Pete, I, I was always a guy that could get my head around perfectly what was going on on the chalkboard. That was never an issue for me. I mean, it was not something I had a hard time doing. When it came to translating that into what needed to happen in yep. in levels of time that are entirely subconscious. It, it is not right. something you can consciously think about. You can mm -hmm. look back on it and say, okay, this is what I did and this is why I did it. But you can't in real time evaluate what's going on. So for me, being a fairly cerebral individual, I mean, that's just kind of mm -hmm. how I, I operate in life. It was so hard, so <laughs> hard. And I really, you know, I was a walk-on. I wasn't, I wasn't mm -hmm. talented anyways, but that, that translation of a very abstract cerebral thing on a chalkboard where it's a decision mm -hmm. tree of, you know, if X, then Y into something that you're doing at the sub-second level in terms of how fast you have to make your decisions is, yeah. I, 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 I don't think any college football player gets enough credit for that. It is remarkable. And obviously the elite guys do it better than, than guys lower down the depth chart. But mm -hmm. honestly, it's everybody that's on a D1 depth chart has to be able to do that to a degree that I think is just really underappreciated by the commentariat and by fans. Yeah, and, and you know, I'm, I'm fortunate enough that not only do I get the opportunity to talk financial stuff with CNBC, but because of my experiences in, in college and professional football and playing for Lou Holtz and speaking at a couple of engagements for Lou, I, I was lucky about five or six years ago, I, I started getting the opportunity to work with ESPN and do color commentary for those games. So I try to point out exactly what you and I are talking about, which is, you know, the, 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 the academic side of so many of these players. And it's amazing. I mean, I, I, I'm calling the color for many games in the last five or six years where there are five guys on the field out of the 22 that have already graduated college, which to me is just staggering. It just shows you that these guys are working in the classroom, they're working on the field, they're playing at an elite level, they're playing in front of 80 to 110,000 people, and it's an amazing experience. And, and you know, that it, it's something that I think we all really truly value. And you, you were talking about that transition, about being at the chalkboard and on the field. You know, I, I always watch John Gruden every year as he gets ready for the draft and he sits down with these quarterbacks, and it's amazing. They all, they all are absolute experts when it gets to them being at the chalkboard, but then at the next level, when they've been dominating in the college level and they're so good, and then they can't even compete to get on the field at the next level in the NFL, and a lot of them, when they get that chance, it doesn't look like it does on the chalkboard, and they haven't been able to get that speed going that we're talking about, and, and they're not able to execute at the level that they did in college, which is why so many of the – it's so difficult. The, pro, the process of evaluation of these players is so difficult, even from college to the next level, because it truly is the most elite players that you can imagine – that are actually playing at the NFL level. There isn't some freshman guy who's starting because the senior got hurt and, and he's undersized and he's maybe a step slow and all the rest of that. When you get to the NFL level, the guy who's the starter and the guy that's behind him are absolutely as good as it gets at any level. And, and that's where I think the huge difference is at the pro level is there's not a big drop-off. I mean, we, we can talk about the big drop-off between a, you know, Tom Brady and his backup, of course. But in the overall scheme of things, when you look at that 53-man roster, Every one of those guys is an unbelievable athlete and a heck of a football player. Absolutely. So speaking of elite, another uh, connection that you have that's interesting is that you uh, knew Prince, uh, the artist mm. formerly mm -hmm. known as, uh, when you were in <laughs> high school. 
Can you talk a little bit about what that was like? He was apparently a really, really talented athlete. Um, basketball, I believe, is is mm-hmm. um, his uh, was his sport. Uh, could he have played at the next level if he hadn't obviously had the incredible talent and passion <laughs> he had for music? Or is that sort of like blowing it out of proportion? It's probably blowing it out of proportion, but I would say this. Absolutely an incredible athlete. Now, Prince is a few years older than me, but I was fortunate enough not only to know him, but... Most of his band members, many of them are younger than he is, and, and they were my classmates as well. And, you know, he played at dances and all those kinds of things for Minneapolis Central growing up, and that was an unbelievable experience. And his talent level, you know, off the basketball court was absolutely, as we all know, unreal. But on the basketball court, believe it or not, he was incredible. But you got to remember this at, at, at five foot, maybe one and a half or two or whatever Prince's height really was. Um, you know, that's going to be really difficult to compete, but it was amazing how, how well he did compete. You know, he has a, a brother, a half-brother, who's about six foot four and a half, who was part of one of the greatest basketball teams. Most people say it was the best basketball team in Minnesota State history at Central back in the day. So, uh, you know, his, his athletic skills um, almost matched his skills in the music world, but that's where he, uh, he really dominated, and he's just a wonderful guy. I mean, you know, the, I always used to be able to uh, tell people just un- incredible stories about his generosity that he couldn't tell, and part of it was a religious side of him. The other part of it is just who the, who the guy was as a person. You can't go around really... tooting your own horn, right? Like, that's not a... <laughs> well, no, not only that, but, you know, because of the religion that, that Prince practiced, he, um, you know, that, that's just something that you just don't, you, you're not able to bring up. And, you know, we had, we had some pretty close affiliations with him in terms of, you know, he had some, there were health issues along the way with family members um, growing up where they didn't have a lot of money, and my dad being a, a wonderful charitable guy as well, did some favors for them and just, you know, just a wonderful family. Uh, obviously, he, you know, there, there were some difficulties as well in a very impoverished neighborhood at Minneapolis Central, but, uh, but, a, but a great person and, and what he did as an, an athlete sort of came to an end as he was getting into high school and he really put his focus on the music industry, which is where he was just unbelievable. Returning it back to football, yeah. Do you think that your experience on the field helped you break into the financial industry and succeed in the financial industry once you were a, a part of it? Uh, was that sort of um, there? I, I I have my own biases around this and my own priors around this, but <laughs> but was the being part of a team? Was the snap decision making? Mm-hmm. Was the sort of commitment to a longer term goal? What sort of stuff uh, did you see a, a feed through from from your football days in college and the NFL into uh, trading options? Um, you know, providing financial commentary, some of the stuff that's core to what mm-hmm. you do. Yeah, well, I I tell you, you you and I would probably agree on this. I think one of the things that you you gather from the sports side of things is discipline, which you, you know, you're forced into this position of discipline. And what I mean by that is you're not just a student and you're not just an athlete, you're a student athlete and you've got to be disciplined with your time. You've got to be disciplined with what you're doing in terms of your eating habits and your partying and all the rest of the things that go along with the college life and in the NFL life. I mean, you know, it, it doesn't stop, and unfortunately there are guys that, that, that fall off of that discipline side of things, and that's where you see so many struggles, and we all read about that type of thing all the time. But I think in terms of how that helped me in the financial world, I'll tell you, when I, when I went and I finally made the decision that I was 
at least going to give it a try in the financial world, and I was going to step onto the trading floors of the Chicago Board Options Exchange. John had already been there since 1981 after he'd played with the Bears. And I'd walked in there, and he, you know, he's the, I got there in 1992, late 1992. And he, of course, had already reached a lot of different levels and had done very, very well for himself. And this whole thing was so confusing to me that, you know, I, I literally would finish every day frustrated beyond words that it wasn't clicking and I didn't really understand this whole thing. And it was so different than if you were at the futures exchange where you're either long or you're short, where with the options of the derivatives world, it's a far more complex world. It doesn't mean that you're, you're making more money or anything like that. It's just a, a more complex world on how you have to figure things out. And when the light finally went on, I think the reason it went on was the persistence and the discipline and the frustration and the competitiveness that I had was, I've got to figure this out. I, I just have to take this puzzle and, and piece this thing together. And, and I, was, I was lucky, but it, it did take some time. It probably took three or four months before all of a sudden it really started to come together. And I think a lot of that came down to, you know, the competitive side of, of sports that, that I think no matter what the, the sport is, You've got that competitive drive in you. You know, it's something that John and I, when, when we started building the firm that we built, Mercury Trading, one of the things that we, we looked at was not necessarily just athletes, but people who had a passion for something outside of just being a business finance major. It didn't matter if they were in a sport or if they were in the chess club, but, but somebody who has been humbled <laughs> and has, has faced defeat, and then how did they react after that? Because there are times on the trading floor when I was down there where, you know, I'd make a poor decision, I'd lose money, and you have to react, and you have to react in a hurry to figure out, all right, well, what do I got to do, and how am I going to come back from this? And, you know, what was the decision that I made that, 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 that I screwed up and, and made this mistake, and I'm not going to do that again? All those things, I think, come into that whole process as you're as you're trying to figure things out and I think the discipline really of of just sticking with it even when you're frustrated but knowing that you know what there's going to come a point in time where I'm going to figure this thing out and and fortunately I did yeah I, I always think back to what uh the head coach of the Duke football team uh used to say his name's David Cutcliffe and he, he used mm -hmm. to say you either do or you don't right mm -hmm. there there's no everybody knows Right. Any situation in life, any, you know, anything going on, whether it's your personal life, your professional life, especially on an athletic endeavor, you know, you know how hard you're working. You know what you have to do and you either get it done or you don't. And you live with the consequences of that. Right. Sometimes you'll be put in a situation where you can't get it done and right. that's OK. But, you know, you didn't get it done. You either do or you don't. And mm -hmm. for better or for worse, I think the financial industry does lend itself to that kind of evaluation. Um, in, in some industries, it's hard to quantify stuff. It's it's hard to, you know, say, well, this person did this and this person did that. And I think the financial industry can get carried away in that sort of approach. You know, who's the biggest revenue? producer who does this who does that mm -hmm. but it does lend itself to that sort of evaluation so you know you it, it, it it's an industry where if you take the attitude well i'm either doing what i'm supposed to be doing and doing it well or poorly or i'm not right mm -hmm. it, it if you can take that attitude it helps right to, yeah. to, to be used to that sort of thinking so i think that's a big takeaway that that i got from from playing college sports and from being engaged in the uh fantastic sport of football during my formative years
You know, and, and being humbled and, and losing and, and being wrong, it, it, it's okay if you know how to react. I mean, you know, I, I, I know your coach actually pretty well, and he was a heck of a coach and, and an unbelievable person. Obviously, the, you know, there are families out there. The Manning family sure loves him as well. But, you know, there is something about when you're wrong, if you learn from it, and how do you react from that? I think part of the thing that I always hung my hat on for, for, for us, John and I, was when you stand on a trading floor – it's almost like being on a football field. On a football field, you've got however many people are in the stadium watching. In high school, we had a couple hundred. In college, it was sixty or 70,000, 80,000. If we were at Michigan, 110,000. People could see those mistakes. And in the trading pit, those guys see your mistakes, and, and, and they know how to press. And it's, you know, there's, there's something about figuring out you know, you, where you're able to say, all right, am I going to try to be an egotistical guy and prove these guys wrong, or am I going to suck it up? Make the mis- you know, I made the mistake, I'm going to fix it, and now I'm going to move on. I'm still going to lose money on this thing, but I'm going to fix it, and I'm going to move on. And I think that's something that, that football really did help. It's, you can't sit there and dwell on the same thing, or you're not going to be able to perform, and you're not going to be able to make that next hit on the next play because you're too worried about what happened three plays ago. And, and it's the same thing with trading. There's also the evaluation thing too, right? In a football program, any elite football program, every single practice snap, every single game snap gets watched, broken down, analyzed. Why did you do this? What was right about it? What was wrong about it? How are we going to get it better next time? And people think that that's an exaggeration. Oh, you know, whatever, like every single snap. No, every (laughs) single snap you sit and watch on videotape. Mm -hmm. That's that's one of the reasons that playing college football is such a big time commitment Mm -hmm. is that you do that. With trading or with any sort of, you know, financial analysis, it's all on the tape, right? Like it's there. You can go back and learn from your mistakes so easily if you have a mind to do so Mm -hmm. because you have it right there. Bought here, sold here, sold here, bought here. Um, Said this or did this piece of work at this point in time. Here's what happened next. Whatever the case may be uh, within the financial industry. So, Mm -hmm. you know, I, I, I think that is is also something that that lends itself quite well. So mm-hmm. uh, you started out in the, on the CBOE in the pits. Uh, is that that's correct? With because yeah. your brother John was there, and what else sort of kept you there other than eventually figuring it out? Well, you know, um, I had come and visited John on the trading floor while I was bouncing around in the NFL um, when when I was at the Vikings, and we'd be in Chicago or in Tampa, and we'd come up. If there was time, I would always want to go visit the trading pits because it was, it, there was something magical about you know the the real world. This wasn't on a computer, which is where we are now, <laughs> and this you know this isn't something that that we were watching on TV. This was something that was real, and you're you, and you had such a you know I, I literally just admired all of the guys and 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 gals that stood on the trading floor. And it, it was their butts on the line. And, and they're standing there with either their own money or somebody is backing them with some money. And their job is to execute and be aware and, and be fast and, and be able to make these split-second decisions. Um, and those that were doing pretty well at that could make a pretty good living doing that. So, you know, there, there, there was a lot of intrigue to this whole thing. So, you know, it, it really wasn't such a, an incredible jump. As a matter of fact, you know, at our firm, and I mentioned that we had, you know, some, some athletes and some people from other different walks of life, but we had quite a few former professional football players, hockey players, and so forth working with us. We had a, 
a couple of guys that ended up going into the NBA who were, were clerks of ours. And when they got to the NBA, I don't think they needed to work much longer with us. So, but, <laughs> but the, uh, but, but it, it, there's something, you know, that that's really intriguing about it, that, that is so similar to playing, um, a sport and you are you might not be in front of the tens of thousands of people but you're in front of the people that are down there on the trading floor and everybody knows when you make a mistake and when you don't and and there's there's something to be said for for liking that moment and liking that pressure and um that was something i i really did enjoy i i enjoyed standing down there and and getting that you know like like we were talking about when i finally got that when the when the light bulb finally went off and i started feeling more and more comfortable and and then a couple years into it i became the risk manager of the firm and and i used to sit there and try to coach the the younger traders that were coming in and just trying to explain to them you know it's okay not every trade's a winning trade that's what you have to understand first and foremost is you are going to make mistakes and it's how you react from those mistakes and being down there on the trading floor, you know, you've got to check your ego at the door. And that's another thing that I don't know that a lot of wall street always is forced into that position. But when you're totally. on a trading floor, you know, you're forced into a position of your ego is, is somewhere else because if you're going to stay there with an ego and you're going to, you're going to be stubborn, you're not going to survive real long in that world that we were in. And, I think all of that sort of added to the intrigue of why I really enjoyed it down there. When you were in the, in the first, I guess, decade or two that, that you were participating in the pits, mm-hmm. you're talking about guys clerking that ended up going to the NBA, former NFL players, former NHL players. Mm-hmm. These are not people that you would think that would be doing mm-hmm. uh, complex derivative math in their heads uh, very easily. So <laughs> a lot of options trading over the years has come from a place that's very sort of divorced from the academic theory around it, right? Like like you've got Black Shoals, which is sort of the pinnacle mm-hmm. Of, mm-hmm. of options pricing theory over the last you know 100 years or so. Mm-hmm. Um, and prices do generally tend to move like Black Shoals would predict. I mean, you can find uh, you can find all sorts of counterexamples, of course, but but generally options markets behave about like you would mm-hmm. expect that that theory to predict them to. Um, but a lot of the time, the people executing that theory don't have a working understanding of it um, or aren't doing the actual math. They're just mm-hmm. trading on instinct or experience or, um, you know, knowledge that is is not so abstracted. And I think this sort of comes back to what we were talking about in the football discussion about the difference between what's happening on the whiteboard and what's happening in real life. So can you sort of talk about how that would work on the floor, like how these guys would end up executing options trades for their own account and on behalf of others when, mm-hmm. you know, they're not really doing complex derivative math. They're doing something else, right? Right. Yeah. They're, they're, you know what? It's a, it's a beautiful complement of doing both. And, and, and it's, it really is. You, you obviously, uh, there's a pricing model out there. And I, if you put up a stock price and you put up a call price, I can tell you where the put should be trading if I know enough detail on the stock in terms of the dividends and all of that kind of thing in a time frame and all of that. It's a pretty quick math that you can do. And, and that part is a little more complex. And, and you mentioned that you don't expect that a lot of the, the people in the professional sports world would, would be able to do that. You'd be surprised how quickly many of them, once they start to get that light going off and they understand that aspect of it, it becomes easier and easier and easier to look at. And then I think you mentioned something that's really important, and it's something that I've always tried to point out, whether I'm 
speaking publicly somewhere or with a group. We, you know, I just the other day I had a, a large group from my alma mater, the University of Minnesota, the business school, came to watch one of the shows being filmed, and I was just telling them, you know, that, that there are some times where the chalkboard is great, right? You're standing up at the chalkboard, and all the numbers make sense, and you're like, wow, that's really easy. That's execution. Wow, they, why don't they do that every single time? Well, it's the same thing in the options world, but there are times where as things are moving, it takes instincts and a reactivity that, 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 that make you put yourself in the best position that there is. And there are times where people just get too caught up in um, some of the theory or they just get too caught up in, in, in the minutia of what's going on in terms of pricing and they lose sight of the bigger picture. Uh, there are times, for instance, where somebody will say, well, and not to get too far into the weeds on this, but they'll say, well, you know, the volatility is really high on these options. You know, they're trading, you know, at a double the normal volatility. And I'll look at them and I'll say, yes, but the option's only trading for 20 cents. So maybe that should be a 30 or a 40 cent option, but it's trading at 20 cents when you really look at the big scheme of that. Do you really want to be short those, or would you rather, if you were short those, buy those back, even though the volatility is telling you that they're too high. And sometimes you just have to make decisions that, that might not always make sense on a piece of paper or up on a chalkboard, but they do make sense in the reality of what's really going on around you. And you've got to move and, 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 and react in such a way that you can, you can make those kinds of decisions where there really comes down almost to common sense, where, you know, why would I stay short an option that's trading very, very insignificant amount left? We've taken the premium out of that. We sold that option a couple weeks ago maybe for a dollar and a half. And now it's trading 20 cents, but, you know, it, it, should, it should be trading at a different price than that. Maybe it's only worth uh, nothing. <laughs> but you know what? Somebody like me would say, yeah, but why don't we buy that back? Because in the, in the unusual circumstance that the stock gets bought out or whatever the circumstance might be that would move this and suddenly this, what is now determined to be something that's worthless, has some value, why wouldn't I make that decision to take that little bit of a hit, lose a little bit of money, at least theoretically today, but I've made significant amounts of money against this trade already. So there's a lot of, you know, reactivity that I think you have to, you have to do on the fly where it's not just about black shoals and these models and volatility and everything else. Sometimes you have to, you have to step out and you have to say, under this circumstance, this makes total sense. This is what we're going to do. This is the common sense and smart trade under these circumstances. It sort of makes me think of uh, Teddy Roosevelt's Man in the Ring speech. You know, you know mm -hmm. the, the, the person you want to venerate isn't the guy commentating on the boxing match. <laughs> it's the guy that's actually, you know, dealing the options, regardless of what some fancy model <laughs> might might say. It's like the Man in the Ring is the one you, you care about, right? Because he's in the ring. <laughs> yep, yep, um, exactly. So... I, Without having some sort of learning period like like you had, you know, you, you, your brother was around and you sort of had that four mm -hmm. or five months where you were able to sort things out. How does an individual mm -hmm. investor who doesn't necessarily have the sophistication to go build a Black-Scholes pricing model or doesn't have the um, sort of capital to make a ton of mistakes, you know, to sort of build the build through learning that way. How does an individual investor get into the world of options and, and do it in a way where they learn something and can sort of start to build um, a toolkit of skills around trading sure. options? 
Well, I think the, the, the best place to start would be to educate yourself on the options world. And, and, you know, I've been preaching this now for, well, I've been on CNBC now, believe it or not, it's been over 10 years. I started uh, the original Fast Money show in late January, early February of 2007. And, uh, you know, that was a five-night-a-week deal for three years with Dylan Radigan and the guys, and it was just a great time and, and a lot of fun, and then it morphed into the halftime and all the rest of these things. But since that time, it's, it's really interesting. Through the financial crisis and, and some of the changes that were made uh, following the financial crisis, it's, it's amazing to me how much growth there has been. Now, you know, we all talk about, the world talks about this on a daily basis, about, wow, the volumes at the New York Stock Exchange have flipped and blah, 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 and they go through all of these types of things, where I look at the options world, the derivatives world, and watch it grow and grow and grow. And then it's amazing to me how many of what we all deem to be some of the smartest peoples on Wall Street, um, whether it's Warren Buffett, or Carl Icahn, or Leon Cooperman, I mean, the list goes on and on, how much those guys, all of those guys, will use options at times to either protect, but more often to position themselves into a much bigger position much faster because of the leverage of how options really work. Because, you know, each option is worth the equivalent of 100 shares. So, that's a whole process, and I don't want to be too confusing on that. But the idea of educating yourself to why wouldn't you want to be in the world where some of the smartest investors are using that, that world of derivatives, the options world, to be able to position themselves and to be able to put themselves into um, an area that, that is, it almost is stealth because you're, you're sort of somewhat flying below the radar when you're, you're, you're trading the options. So, but aren't there, but aren't find there a it... couple of pretty easy pushbacks to that? I mean, like the, the, the first thing you, I would sort of think hearing that is, well, okay, yeah, you know, Buffett and Cooperman, pick your name, may use derivatives sure. a lot. Do I really want to be fighting against a fish that big, like in, in something as no, illiquid as you options? <laughs> um, so, and you then the other thing I think wanna... is, is, you know, I'll, and I'll let you answer to these back to back but the, the other thing i think is there is a persistent volatility premium right like like you can measure it going back over time in you know pick your choice the easiest one to talk about is the s p 500 the s p 500 has options that are mispriced over time people pay too much for volatility over time and there are good reasons that they do that but ultimately if you're constantly you know um laying out money for premium to position yourself for upside aren't you playing into the into the behavioral trap that people overpay for that leverage and for that volatility and that that's not a winning strategy on average over time yeah well that's you know what you that's a really great question and i would say this uh, to your second um it's all about education and understanding and 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 if you have that education of Hey, look. I, I first of all, I have to understand exactly what, how the options themselves actually price. How do they work? Where are there times where I should be a seller or should I be a buyer of options? I mean, those are all the things that I think are are obviously extremely important questions that need answers. And education. There are so many different ways. I mean, John and I, you know, we have our own educational uh, branch that we have at Investitute, and. You know, it's it's all about educating people and and giving them at least uh, enough of an understanding, and uh, depending on how advanced they want to go, an extreme understanding of the whole pricing model. And and to answer your question about some of that volatility, you you do have to know enough about it to know when are the times where 
this is going to be a much better way to play this uh, through a call spread, or do I want to be naked to calls? Or do I want to sell puts, which is something that's, that, that can be very dangerous as well. So I'm not advocating it unless you have a full knowledge of it. But, you know, uh, when you say fighting against the Buffets and the Coopermans of the world, that's the interesting part to me is one of the things that, that we have, you know, created uh, over the last years after selling our trading firm that was on the trading floor of the CBOE to uh, a group, um, we tried to reinvent ourselves. And in the process of that, we sort of stumbled upon some some great ideas as we were going through thought. John and I were going through all of these thoughts about, well, what is it that we'd want to know since we're no longer standing on the trading floor? Because just to refresh, if you're standing on the trading floor and you hear a bunch of yelling over in the Microsoft pit, you probably are going to go walking over there wondering, what's going on over here? There's a lot of screaming and yelling. There's a lot of paper going on. What's going on? And you, suddenly you see that there's four different brokerages houses there all coming in to buy upside calls in there. You, you probably wonder why that is. <laughs> so you may want to be a participant in that as well. And that's sort of something that, you know, we, we call it unusual activity um, on, on the shows that we do. But, you know, we're just tracking to see where is something that, that, that seems to be completely unusual that we used to see on the trading floor that because it's in the cyber world now, you don't see it. So we built these uh, models that actually will, through this proprietary algorithm, that we'll find exactly what we used to hear on the floor. Now we can see it um, popping up right in front of us on our screens on where these unusual things are. I'll give you a great example about not fighting against, but going with somebody like a Warren Buffett. You know, I remember before he bought Burlington Northern, um, I saw somebody. Now, I didn't know it was Warren Buffett, but there was some absolutely massive paper coming in to Norfolk, or excuse me, uh, Burlington Northern. And they were, they were buying upside calls, but they were selling downside puts. And I don't want to get out in the weeds and be too confusing on the derivatives world. But what that really meant was somebody felt that this stock was going to be moving to the upside in a hurry. And they were doing it in large enough size that it had to be somebody very large. And lo and behold, as it turns out, not too many weeks or months after seeing all of this incredibly large paper that was coming in there, um, Warren Buffett buys Burlington Northern. And he did a lot of the leveraging to build up a position, not just in the stock, but also in the options world. So, you know, it, uh, that's the key is I, I don't think you want to fight against the Warren Buffetts and the Lee Coopermans and all these smart guys, the Carl Icons of the world, and so many others. Uh, I, I'm, I shouldn't just use those names because there's, there's so many others, but they, they are using more and more in the derivatives world because there's such a great amount of liquidity and obviously leverage that it gives the opportunity to position or reposition in a hurry as opposed to the, the stock world where we know the volumes just continue to kind of dwindle. So if you can find a way to kind of ride the coattails of those guys, which is sort of the idea that, that John and I sort of go off of, I guess, um, it can be a pretty interesting way to at least, you know, if nothing else, you, you have the knowledge in the back of your head, guy, you know, it wasn't too long ago I saw a lot of paper coming into these rail stocks and they were buying – you know this this name and that name and 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 then suddenly you know you, you you it starts to grab your attention when it's not just CSX right now but it's you know Union Pacific and it's you know Norfolk Southern and it's like wow there seems to be a theme right now in this world and 
Why is that? And, you know, it just grabs your attention. If nothing else, it gets your attention to start looking into, um, well, what's going on and why would this be occurring? Why is somebody positioning very large in some of these various sectors or specific names? Are you able to talk a little bit more uh, in detail? I realize it's a proprietary algorithm, but talk about what sort of attributes, quote unquote, unusual activity has. So is it is it large volume spikes beyond a certain uh, range of moneyness? Is it is it um, you know, looking back a year, is it looking back 10 years? What, what's mm-hmm. the sort of, you know, I mean, and again, I, I, I don't want you to talk about your no, whole algorithm, but, uh, <laughs> um, you know, just a little bit more detail on that would be interesting because it's so hard to create context around some of this, these individual data points where, mm-hmm. you know, unusual activity by one person's definition is just, you know, not nothing by someone else's. Right. Well, I, I would distinguish one thing absolutely for you, uh, because, there are many, many people out there who will give you, uh, and this is something that the world continues to do. They've, they've been doing it for tens, you know, decades now, 10, 20, 30 years. And then when they're talking about the options world, they say, wow, there's a lot of volume out here. Uh, just so you know, and the rest of anybody listening knows, uh, volume is meaningless. It's not about volume. It's about knowing, are they buying or are they selling? And when I say they, I mean, Whoever is positioning coming in here, whether it's a fund, whether it's an individual, whatever the case may be, are they buying or are they selling? And that's what matters to me. I mean, I, it, it's funny. I sit there every single day and I will hear um, on CNBC or any of the other financial cha- channels out there, well, you know, the call to put volume is such and such. And I just sit there thinking to myself, what, what does that mean? It doesn't mean anything. Uh, it, it has more to do with... You know, for instance, if they were buying puts and selling calls and that was the volume that we were seeing, that would be a meaningful statement to me. But the idea that there's just call volume and put volume to me is is meaningless um, (laughs) beyond words. So I want to know, are they buying or selling? And, you know, the unusual activity that that we are discussing usually on, on television for people when they when we get the opportunity um, is all based upon buying. Or selling, but at least we're gonna we're gonna know. I mean, for instance, if they're coming in and there 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 is huge volume of selling of puts, and um, it could be somebody that's trying to position in a stock where, you know what, if the stock continues to drop and they've got a high volatility there, I'm willing to own that stock as the seller of that put. I'm willing to own that stock at that level. I'm okay, and they understand all of the ramifications of what that will mean if the stock were to continue to drop to the downside. But there is a there is a game plan there where somebody has done this, and they're doing this, whether they're buying upside calls or they're buying calls or they're buying puts. It's more important to know, are they buying or are they selling, more than almost anything. And the volume and, obviously, the premium amount that somebody is willing to pay or you know whether they're paying or, or if they're selling it, that's pretty significant as well. Obviously, if they're buying and they're coming in and they're buying a three dollar option versus a thirty cent option, and they're buying two thousand of the three dollar, but they're only buying four thousand of the thirty cent. There's a different commitment level uh, of that trade. And also, what what was the open interest, in other words, in that strike before this trade executed? Those are parts of what we're talking about when we're talking about 
what we're looking for with unusual activity is dollar amount that's really being spent on the trade. That's pretty important, I think. Is there a catalyst out there that would make sense? Uh, you're just trying to think through all of the things, not just earnings, but there's all kinds of other potential catalysts out there. Is this in a sector that's in the process of potentially seeing a lot of M&A going on? All of those various things go through our mind as we're as we're trying to dissect some of this, what we call the unusual paper, unusual options that are that are trading in the in the options world. In your trading, do you do much around volatility strategies that that aren't focused on just a you know stocks going to go up, I want long exposure via calls, or stocks going to go down, I want to own puts, or vice versa? Are you delta hedging positions? Uh, do you look at at gamma positions? Do you look at uh, volatility harvesting over time. A lot of quant funds do that kind of thing. Just curious how, yeah. how you sort of think about some of those more complex option strategies as opposed to their traditional calls are bullish, puts are bearish. Mm -hmm. You know, what do you think? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, well, you know, there's a, there's a couple different strategies that, uh, that, that I'm involved with primarily. I mean, there, I, I would put it into two bucket lists. One is it's literally just an option trading bucket list of if I'm seeing calls trading, you know, and I want to be involved, I'm going to be involved in those calls or puts that are trading. So there's the one bucket, and that's just based on the unusual activity. On the other bucket um, is something like you were just talking about some of these funds, these quant funds and so forth. But we're looking for stocks that we would, view, would deem to be something that um, is – extremely, uh, I'd, I'd almost use the expression, I guess, blue chip. But when you look at the balance sheets, they, they check several boxes. And if, if all the boxes check, and I've seen some option paper coming in there, um, in this particular strategy that, that me and a group of wealth management group um, have been involved with, we're going to use the higher volatility and try to use that in sort of, uh, I guess you'd want to call it a buy right style fund. Um, where we're literally looking for the right kinds of stocks that, that in other words, if, if, if it's a company that has an incredibly high PE or they, they have incredible amounts of debt versus the, you know, what cash is on the balance sheet, those aren't the kinds of names that, that this particular idea, this, this, this fund or whatever you want to term it, um, would be involved in. These, we're looking for very high-quality names where – We've seen some activity in there. there the, the volatility is inflating because of a lot of that activity, and we're looking for opportunities to create a buy-right fund off of that sort of a style. And just so, to walk through the mechanics yeah. of that, a buy-right fund would be um, would be taking an options position and hedging it in some way underlying with the stock. So um, buying the stock and, and writing a call option, for instance. And what that allows you to do is it allows you to take in the premium from the call. And if the stock goes up, you've got a long position in the stock. So you have a little bit more pain tolerance. And over time, and again, this is just sort of background for folks that aren't necessarily as familiar, over time, options are overpriced in aggregate. So if you're doing this in names that aren't likely to have a huge drop, like like uh, Pete just sort of tried to describe, you're probably going to be able to harvest some kind of volatility premium. You're going to be able to earn um, an outsized return relative to what you would owning the stock on a risk-adjusted basis. Right, exactly right. And in, in many of the cases, when you're talking about the higher quality stocks, 
good chance you're also going to have a dividend. So there's a dividend yield on top of the yield that you're harvesting as you're using that word. I love that word. As you're harvesting some of the premiums from that cell, um, it, it, it can be amazing how advantageous that can be for a position. It also gives you a little bit of cushion to the downside because of whatever premium amounts that you've sold. So you're not, it's not quite as painful if it starts to slip a little bit because you have sold calls against it. So you've got a little bit of premium that allows a little bit of, of that slippage to not feel. And is that purely opportunistic? So you're only opening those kind of positions when you see that sort of activity that would drive up premiums or is it, is it sort of more rolling it over time and adding or subtracting weightings depending on what's going on in the underlying ball markets? Believe it or not, it, it, it is it is far more just based upon when we see that activity that then then it, if if everything else is fulfilled, uh, then those are those are the kinds of things that we will position in. And obviously, we keep an eye on how far out were they going when when whoever they are. But how far out were were these uh, these trades? Are they three months out? Are they six months out? If they're six months out, and I can sell options against this over the next six months of time, that can end up being a decent amount of premium that I'm able to bring in, even if the stock were to stay flat for that six months. Um, that's why harvesting that that premium can be a really interesting strategy. Have you seen any impact on the markets that you track? So your, your single stock options more often than not, I'm mm-hmm. sure you occasionally trade stuff like spider um, options, so options on S&P 500 ETF yep. or that kind of thing. But generally, you're a single stock options guy. Have you seen impacts on the single stock options market from the prevalence and popularity of both long and short ball products that are keyed off of index options. So for instance, um, you know, an an ETN or an ETF that that sells uh, the VIX index um, or an ETF Mm -hmm. or an ETN that takes a leveraged long position in the VIX index and they don't actually own the VIX, they own VIX futures, but close enough. Mm-hmm. Um, so have you seen that that volatility both buy and sell um, from ETFs and ETNs affect the single stock uh, volatility markets? Or is that something that's sufficiently uh, far away in derivative terms from what you do that it, it doesn't really make a big difference? In my opinion, it is a little bit further away and, and makes less of a difference. And I think, you know, the, the interesting thing to me, I, mean, I know there are a lot of guys out there who have incredible amounts of success, so I'm not downplaying the ETF world and all the rest of that. But uh, the, 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 re- the, the thing I, I enjoy is the, the single stocks themselves, individual names, because, you know, everything is, that, that's involved with that stock is going to be tied in with that stock. And obviously there's going to be some some movement that's going to be caused from other names within that sector and so forth. But for instance, you know, if, if I'm looking at Home Depot, do I really want to be in, you know, something like the Builders ETF, blah, blah, blah. I, I would rather be specifically right there and knowing that the majority, if not all, but at least the majority of anything and everything that's going to be affecting that specific name is going to be coming from that name. And there will be some stuff on the sides, obviously, that, you know, people will react to Home Depot if they see something going on at Lowe's and so forth. But um, I, I do stick far more to the individual names just based upon that idea. But, but you don't, you don't see the, the market uh, being distorted or changed in any way no. by the fact that there are now huge, essentially, retail positions in, in mm-hmm. fixed futures via these ETNs and ETFs. 
you you don't right. think that's a that, yeah, that I, matters for a single stock option? And I I don't know either way. I'm just curious for your take on it. Yeah, I hear that a lot. I I do. I mean, I hear that a lot from even people who sit on our panel of our desk of of the various shows. Uh, I don't see that. No, uh, I mean, I really don't. I think, you know, it's an interesting thing, and I think that, that quite frankly, there are, there are certain parts that, um, in, in my opinion, when I see huge trades in vo- the volatility index or, or any of those volatility um, ETF-type style things that are out there, um, I think what, what, what we're seeing is far more just – different ways that people are figuring out whether it's quants or whatever of hedging. And I don't know necessarily that it's much more than that. So I still think that um, it, it is a little, it's, it's far enough away that I think that you uh, you're, you're not seeing it affect quite to the degree that some people think on the single stocks themselves. Your uh, daily show on CNBC gets a lot of attention as a market barometer. So people will watch um, Fast Money or Fast Money <laughs> Halftime and they'll kind of use it to say, okay, well, like, what are people saying about the market? You know, not necessarily, oh, well, you know, everybody that's on the show knows exactly what's happening or anything like that because no one's that smart. As we discussed earlier, everyone has losing <laughs> trades all the time and that's a given. But um, mm-hmm. I, I think it's fair to say that, that you guys are a popular gauge of sentiment in the market and a popular gauge of sort of where the market is. Um, how does that sort of feel and how do you how do you think about that? Um, I don't want to call it a responsibility, but but it, it, it would it would kind of if I was sitting in that seat, I would kind of be nervous that I was, you know, um, I don't know, not necessarily moving the market, but providing the wrong impression or, you know, being too consensus or whatever the case may be, right? Like, do, do you think about that at all when you sit yeah. down in the chair or is it just, you know? Absolutely. No, I do. I absolutely do. And, I, and I'll tell you what, I, I think the best advice I ever got uh, before I ever started doing any of the uh, the the full-time TV work that, you know, in the financial world is, hey, look, and this has been my approach, and not everybody subscribes to this, so this is this is me and me alone. But um, I thought it was great advice from from some very smart guys in the financial world. And they said to me, they said, "Hey, Pete, one thing you've got to remember the entire time is, is pretty much what you were just discussing. There are people that are watching that are looking towards you with the idea that you have some better sense than they do in terms of." you know, the, why things are happening and, 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 and you need to be very uh, conscious of that and also conscious that they don't, they don't think it's funny. Uh, you know, and so the one thing you'll notice if you watch me um, on most of the show uh, time that I am ever on, I very rarely, and I tend to be, I mean, uh, let's be honest, I'm an old football player and I've, I, I, you know, I was asked to be in the professional wrestling world at one time in my career when I stopped. <laughs> what was the What was the name I mean, for your character you know, going to be? I got to hear that. Oh, I don't know, but you know, there was a guy named Bill Goldberg who was my nose guard who ended up going oh, into wrestling man. and loved it and had a huge career. And you know, right down the street from me right now, I've got Jesse Ventura lives literally walking distance away from my house presently, and he was the old governor, but. He was also just. I thought he did all his broadcasting from the deserts in Mexico or something yeah, like that. He's Is he back, back in Minnesota now? Yeah, yeah, he's back in Minnesota. He's back from the deserts of Mexico. He does a show in Russia, and you know, he's he's a character <laughs> and a half. But you know, the so so when I when I say all that, I, I say that as a backdrop of. I mean, you know, I'm I'm smart enough to know if you look at me, I've got uh, I've got very long hair, 
what hair I've got. Um, I've got, I used to have a big long goatee on my face that was dyed white. And, uh, you know, all of that is just sort of the silly side of me. But, uh, uh, you know, on the, on the business side of me, I understand. And the advice they gave me was, Hey, look, you cannot screw around. You can't, you, you can't be overly playful too often. Now there's a time and a place, but once in a while, you know, yes, uh, it, I will have a little bit of fun and I'll be the real Pete, <laughs> um, personality wise on the show, but it's very rare because I do understand that there's a responsibility and I do understand that there are people there that are watching that probably have lost money and they're not very happy. And the last thing they want is for some guy to be dancing around on their stock um, because of the fact that, you know, you know, for lack of a better thing right now, United Airlines, the stock's going down because they dragged some guy off and you make a big joke out of it or something like that. That's not funny. And, and the people who are along that stock, the employees, they don't find any of those things funny to make fun of or to, to be very loose and all the rest of that. So, you know, my approach has always been when it's time and when the show starts, it's business. I can have a little bit of fun here and there, but very, very little. I, I, it's not the Today Show. It's not Good Morning America. It's a financial show where people are curious what your thoughts might be. And I purposely do not look at the notes of anybody else from the show when I go on because I don't – first of all, I don't care. And second of all, it's, it's really – I'd rather be reactive to what their thoughts are rather than maybe, maybe having that influence what I am going in thinking about the market that day. Do you think that that, that attitude – and obviously that, that, that um, it's not something that you can exercise control over. People are going to think what they're going to think. But do you think that that attitude of sort of watching um, financial television or reading financial research as sort of like the last word on, on what's going to happen and that there's money on the line and that, that you know people are, are – seeking out popular media solutions for their investment advice, basically. Do, do you think that that's at all problematic or that that's at all something that um, can be a, a challenging um, sort of dynamic for the market as a whole? Uh, or or do you think it's something that would be inevitable and there's no real way to get away from it? Well, I would say that, that, that the biggest mistake I think that people do make um, is to watch any show and any individual person, whether it be me or my brother John or Jim Cramer, whomever, and make their sole decision off of, well, I heard him talk about this, and he liked it, so I like it. <laughs> yeah. I think that you have to put more into it than that, and I do put that on the viewer. I mean, I, I think that they have to understand that you know, you or me or John or, or Jim or whomever it may be, they, they uh, in, particularly in our case, John and myself, I mean, we're truly traders. Now, there are stocks that I've owned for, you know, over a decade, but overall, I, I'm a trader. And I think people have to understand that there, there could be something that occurs that causes your opinion to change literally and spin on a dime. And, um, so they, they have to understand that. So I think that there is a responsibility of, of the viewer, too, to understand, you know what, just because they talked about it, maybe I ought to research this. Maybe I ought to look into this. Maybe I, I, I should go through a process. But I think that there is some method that, that people have to use when watching and not just 
suddenly, you know, whether it's, a, you know, watching a, a, fo- a football game and the analysis beforehand and somebody says, well, that, that made a lot of sense what he said. I think this is, this is the way I'm going to play this game if I'm a better or whatever it might be. Right. I mean, I, I just don't think that's the, the right way to approach it. I think it's great to get three or four people um, like we have on our show where we may all have the same opinion one day, but we may have differing opinions the next day. And, and that's a good thing. Um, I think it's good for people to, you know, it's part of why oftentimes we used to do these debates a little more often, and, and hopefully we do more organic debates, quite frankly, on the show than sort of a stage debate. But it's why we've done debates over time on, on, on those shows is to give people an idea of, of two ways of looking at the exact same stock and how could you possibly do that. And hopefully, you know, both folks can give a decent enough argument that it makes you at least think and, and then, you know, look at that and make some decisions, you know, not based upon what John or Pete had to say, but more upon, you know what, that was an interesting topic. I'm going to look into this and I'm going to try to figure this thing out because you know what, I, I, I liked what I heard about, you know, the positive side of this, but there are some negatives and, and, you know, going back and forth. And so hopefully it's just something that clicks for people so that there's a thought process to, to maybe dig a little deeper and, and, and then make some decisions. And I'm hoping people don't ever make decisions just off of any one person pounding the table on something. I guess it also, you know, one of the things I try and do in this podcast for sure is, is try and hit back to certain themes. And one that was mentioned earlier and that we've talked about with other guests and that, you know, I'll continue to mention for anyone that, you know, listens to this podcast is that no matter how good you are, you can be the smartest, Hmm. best timing, best, you know, understanding of a stock, best, you know, whatever in whatever market in financial markets, the best guys in the world are only barely right more frequently than they are wrong. They are almost as frequently wrong as they are right, in other words. So the idea that any expert is going to be able to improve on that and have a sort of a guru-like approach is tough. And, you know, it it just, I, 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 it's, it's, I'm glad to hear that you, you know, are aware of that yourself, because I think that it, it can, it can be really harmful when people get the impression that there is someone out there that knows what's going to happen every time the next time, because no one does. <laughs> right. and no I one does. Totally agree. I totally agree. And it's, it, it, it's somewhat comical that, that, uh, that, that some of the folks out there think that they, uh, they are right as far, uh, far more often than they are. Cause I don't think that they are. hundred percent, hundred percent. So we'll close it out here. The last segment we always do is trading rich, trading cheap, just a little bit of word association. You can give a little bit of expansion on your answer. If you like, if it's something interesting that you okay. want to talk about, um, we'll do three or four terms and then, uh, we'll say goodbye for the day. So, uh, the first thing, uh, I would ask is, is trading rich or trading cheap your, um, uh, home state of Minnesota. <laughs> I think this is the greatest state of the 50. And uh, the, you know, I was up for the... Uh, I was, Why do you think it's the greatest state of the 50, other than the fact that you're, you're from Minnesota yourself? Well, and I moved here. So let's remember, I, I've lived in, born and raised sure. in, in the Bay Area, California. I, I lived in Chicago. I, I lived in Connecticut for the last 10 years. I played football. I lived down in Tampa, as well as in the Texas area. So... I've gotten a pretty good sense of this country. Uh, I'll tell you what I love so much about Minnesota, why I'd be a buyer or whatever you'd want to say. Um, it is, it, it's an incredible place with incredible people, and I think it, it you know, I'm a country music guy, and um, there's, a, there's a whole song about flyover states, and I think that Minnesota probably falls into that category oftentimes. And, and that's okay. 
but it's interesting because when I was recently, um, I was I was one of the finalists for potentially being the athletic director at the University of Minnesota, and during that whole process, um, I'd already known this, but I had to research it even a little bit to have a little bit more of the absolute numbers. But the number of Fortune 500 companies within an eight-mile circumference of downtown Minneapolis is staggering, and it's an, it's amazing to me the intellect that exists here. And it's not the East Coast, it's not the West Coast. You know, it's an interesting thing because I think oftentimes people think, well, you know, they're just a bunch of Midwesterners and they're farmers and they're this and that. And, you know, Target is here and 3M is here. And, you know, we've got all of these various incredible companies from Best Buy and Super Value. And it's just, it, it's, it's just an incredible place to live. And, uh, you know, the the biggest complaint people will always say is the weather, and, and, and it's funny because I stand out there in my yard um, since I moved back here two and a half years ago, and I think to myself, I love the four seasons. I love the spring right now, and I'm a guy who works in his own yard, so I'm loving the spring. Summer's almost here, so we're getting ready to start the boat and get the water skiing going and the jet boats and all that kind of stuff and jet skis and, and have some fun. and. And in wintertime, we just got to embrace it and, and, and enjoy the snow. And obviously with the, with the Vikings and football and the Super Bowl coming in 2018, I mean, it's a, it's a great place to be right now. I'll tell you, I, I was born and raised in British Columbia. I spent four years in North Carolina, four years in New York, and now I'm uh-huh. back in North Carolina. And I, I will take everything that you just said about Minnesota at face value with the exception of the winter. I don't know how y'all do it, man. <laughs> <laughs> Here's the key to winter. The key to winter is you've got to plan two trips, one in sometime in early January and one in late February, and go somewhere like where you are in beautiful North Carolina or Florida or Hawaii or somewhere warm for about three or four days. You'll be okay because then it makes the winter a little bit shorter. <laughs> Perfect. So you're the son of a doctor. You played in the in college football, in high school, college, and the NFL. You played football. Uh Concussions are a huge thing right now. I know a lot of parents, um, you know, young parents who have said, my kid's not going to play football. It's too dangerous. Mm -hmm. Uh, Do you think the uh, sport of football for the masses, it's currently the most popular participation sport in the country, um, and, you know, it probably will be for a little while to come at least, but do you think that the perception of football as a sport that a lot of people play is trading rich or trading cheap? You know, I think I think unfortunately for me right now, I think that um, you know that that we we have all become so aware. I mean, I'm sitting here right now as I'm talking to you, and literally there's a there's a document sitting in front of me called the NFL Case Consulting LLC, and it's all about concussions. And um, you know, it's 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 a sad thing. I had a brother who died from ALS, uh, most likely connected with uh, playing professional. Well, he played college and professional football. He played out in the Pac-10 at Cal with Ron Rivera, who's your coach down there in Carolina. Um, great guy, great friend. You know, I I would say this. I I think that I think football will continue to be and and is because of the base of what it is a a, a watched sport, a highly participatory sport. But there is no doubt that um, there is a growing um, voice out there with the concerns over the concussions. Um, I think, quite frankly, they have done so much in the last four years even um, 
to curb some of these issues uh, that will slow down some of the head. But there's still going to be head trauma. I, there's no way around it. Um, and I think that most players that play in college and pro are fully aware now. So there's no hiding it anymore or anything of that sort. So it's out there, and people are still participating and st- say they still play. And um, But I think that, you know, there's a, there's a little decline, and I think there's growth in lacrosse. There's growth in all kinds of other sports that are wonderful. I love them. But uh, I wouldn't give up one single play that I played in, knowing that probably I might have done some damage to myself even over the years of playing as long as I did. Uh, it, it taught me so many things, gave me so many friends that, uh, I, I can't imagine not have playing foot, played football. Well, I'm glad to hear no regrets there. Uh, last one, trading rich or trading cheap, the individual investor, are we all going to be indexing 25 years from now, or <laughs> is the, uh, slow decline of the individual investor going to halt and, and turn around? You know, that's the, you know, that's the big question. I swear to you, I wish I could give you a really solid answer and opinion on that. And I don't really have it. I think, I think that if, if, if anything, the one thing that really was, if there was anything good that came out of the financial crisis, and believe me, I don't think much was good, but if there was anything, it was that people finally took stock of exactly what they have in terms of where am I exposed what does it mean? What would happen under this scenario or that scenario? And, and if nothing else, it, it's given people a, a focus on something because, quite frankly, we all work so hard for our money, and we, we do. And most people, the, the investing that they're doing is, is, is part of some sort of a retirement or whatever it may be, um, and even some of the, the investing they do individually on their own. So I, I, I think if nothing else, I'm excited that people um, are aware and that they're they're keeping track and they they're far more knowledgeable than they ever were in the past in terms of um, knowing where their money is and what exposure they have in the world as we live in it right now. So I think that that was something good in terms of <laughs> passive, aggressive, individual, and all that with all these things. I, I swear to you, I, I do not have an opinion on that. I think it's it'll probably be something that nobody's even thought of right now in, in 10 or 20 years. That'll be an amazing way that, that people will be able to invest differently than they do now. I think the one thing that, that there's no doubt that people are trying to move towards is the excitement in that sort of trying to get involved in that venture capital world, getting in before companies IPO and that type of thing. And I, I hope they realize the dangers in that as well, because it, 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 for every Facebook, there are hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands, of companies that do not get to that point. But uh, but I think that's an area that we're going to see growth in over time, and, and we're already seeing that, where people want to have an involvement uh, before things even go public. Well, we'll close it out on that. Uh, Pete Nigerian, thank you so much for joining us on Bespoke Cast. It was great talking to you about football, the markets, and about your career path, and uh, we'll uh, look forward to talking to you again soon. I look forward to it. Thanks a lot. It was really a lot of fun.
Thanks for joining us this week on the Bespoke Cast. Once again, I'm Bespoke Investment Group's macro strategist, George Perks. If you enjoy Bespoke Cast, please consider reviewing the podcast in the iTunes Store or on your favorite podcast platform. Reviews help us gain visibility and also help us improve the podcast in future episodes. If you'd like to learn more about our firm, please visit BespokePremium.com and follow us on Twitter at Bespoke Invest. Subscribers to our research receive access to the Bespoke Cast one week before public release, in addition to the wide range of reports, datasets, analysis, and commentary that we send out daily. Special thanks to the Free Music Archive for the music in this episode. The track is called Marathon Man by Jason Shaw and is made available under the Creative Commons license. Please visit freemusicarchive.org for more information. Copyright 2016, Bespoke Investment Group, LLC. The information herein was obtained from sources which Bespoke Investment Group, LLC believes to be reliable, but we do not guarantee its accuracy. Neither the information nor any opinions expressed constitute a solicitation of the purchase or sale of any securities or related instruments. Bespoke Investment Group, LLC is not responsible for any losses incurred from any use of this information.